This is J. Michael Edwards again, welcoming you to episode 6 in our study of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Today we will start our study of the seven churches in Asia Minor with a lesson called, When the Flame Becomes an Ember, the Church in Ephesus. Just a reminder for you to listen to these lessons in order. If this is your first lesson, please go back to the introduction so you can have some foundation to these future lessons. Let's join our teacher, Pastor Don Klein, as he continues to encourage, enlighten, and edify all here in the Majestic Academy with a verse-by-verse study of this magnificent book. Thank you for that, J. Michael. As always, a wonderful job here in the Majestic Academy. And welcome to all of our listeners to Episode 6, we're going to talk about the church at Ephesus in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to um, introduce you to the Pena sisters. The Pena sisters are the daughters of a good missionary friend of mine, Julius Pena, Pastor Julius over there in the Philippines. He and I worked together back in Calgary for some time, and he went back to Canada uh, to take over, back over his church, and he wants to, he has a desire, he feels God's leading him to return to Canada as a missionary and plant churches there, um, especially Filipino churches. But the, uh, the Pena sisters are his three young daughters, and during our Eagle's Nest live broadcasts over over the past months, they have been gracious enough to come on and sing some songs, and we've been having fun with that. And they've uh, recorded 10 different cuts for Eagle's Nest Live, and I'm going to share one of those cuts here this evening with you. This is their, uh, the last one that they did, and uh, I just I really enjoy having them as part of the Eagle's Nest, and I wanted to share them here in the Majestic Academy. So we're gonna take just a, just a second here from our, from our lesson, and we're gonna to listen to the Pena Sisters. Hello everyone, we are the Pena Sisters. I am Jam. I am Jam. I am Joy. We're here to render a special song. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life.
God bless. Thank you, ladies. That's fantastic. It's uh, it's better when you can see them in person, as we did on uh, Facebook Live, because they are beautiful young ladies, and we'll be introducing the rest of this album as we go along in our lessons here. So let's get on with our study, beginning with these verses. Let me uh, let me read these uh, these verses as we get started in chapter two of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden sticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars." and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And that's Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. Father, thank you for these precious, precious verses in your word. I pray now that I might be able to share uh, what's on my heart with uh, with the, uh, the uh, folks here in the Majestic Academy. Father, bless us now as I teach and preach in Jesus' name. Amen. As we discuss these churches, my desire is to take the practical application of these letters and seek to apply them to all true churches. And we know that the churches are not the buildings. Those listening, if you're born again, you are the church. We are the church. So these letters really are to you and me. And I believe the Lord has something specific to say to each one of us in these letters. The first letter that comes before us is to the church located in the city of Ephesus. To understand some of the things spoken to the church, we need to examine the city. So let me share with you a few facts of the ancient city of Ephesus. It was important for several reasons. It was an important city commercially. Ephesus was located on the Castor River, just a few miles inland from the Aegean Sea. It was noted for its magnificent harbor, and ships came to Ephesus from all over the world to bring goods and their wealth. It was the richest city in Asia Minor for that day. It was also an important city politically. Because of past service to the Empire of Rome, Ephesus was granted the right to be a free city. This means that they practiced self-government. It means that they could make whatever decisions they wanted to make. It also means that Roman troops were not garrisoned there. 
This allowed the city to thrive. It was an important city religiously. Ephesus was the home of the Temple of Diana, or Artemis. In its day, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. People came from everywhere to come to that temple. Now, Diana was the goddess of sex and fertility. She was represented by a hideous statue of a many-breasted woman. This temple was filled with hundreds of temple prostitutes, and the way you worshipped Diana at that time was to have sexual relations with a temple prostitute. The temple also served as a bank. People would bring their possessions there for safekeeping. It served as museum for fine art. Art from all over the world was housed in this ancient temple. It also served as a refuge for criminals. If a lawbreaker could get to the temple, he would be safe from prosecution. It's easy to see that the city of Ephesus was a wicked, degenerate, vile place to live. A Greek philosopher named Heraclitus said, No one could live in Ephesus without weeping over the immorality which he must see on every side. A bit of a side note, I think that this man Heraclitus might say the same thing about the world today. But I move on here. It was to this vile city that God sent the Apostle Paul. Paul preached here for two years and founded this church. While Paul was there, he wrote the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Timothy was the first bishop of this church. 1st Timothy 1.3 says, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Aquila, Priscilla, and Apollos all labored in the Ephesus church. You'll find that in Acts 18. The Apostle John also spent the last years of his life in Ephesus. It was here that he wrote the Gospel of John in his three epistles. According to tradition, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was buried in Ephesus. This church was privileged to hear and know the best of the best in those days. It was an active church serving in a wicked, wicked hour. But God used them and many souls were saved. And by the way, the same methods used in Ephesus, they still work today. We will not reach our community by sitting and doing nothing. We will reach the world by going out and sharing the gospel with them. Now, 30 years have passed and the Lord comes to this church to speak to them about where they are and where he wants them to be. He comes to them with a message of comfort. They are reminded in verse 1 that he has them safely in his hand. The word holdeth there speaks of being in absolute control. In a society that was out of control, they needed to know that he was in control. We need that same message today. He reminds them that he is ever, ever with them, observing them and protecting them as they seek to serve him. As we study these seven letters, I want you to notice that the Lord has something personal to say to each of these churches. He comes to this church talking about his presence among them. This was a church that desperately needed to recognize the presence of the Lord in their midst. Jesus makes four observations concerning this church that I want to share with you. 
I want to take this passage and preach on the thought, when the flame becomes an ember. And I believe through this lesson today that Jesus has a word for our hearts too. The first thing in verses 2 through 3 and 6, Jesus examines their reputation. Jesus begins his remarks to this church by talking about all that is right with this congregation. They had a lot going for them, and the Lord lets them know it. He has seen all the good they are doing in his name. He comes to them with precious words of commendation. He commends their service. Jesus uses three words to describe the activity of this church. Number one is works. This word speaks of that which is accomplished. It refers to the fact that this church has accomplished much for the glory of the Lord. They have been working, and Jesus has seen it all. Number two, labor. This word literally means a beating. It speaks of intense work coupled with toil and trouble. It tells that this church was serving the Lord fervently. They were literally working their fingers to the bone. In other words, this was no Sunday morning only crowd. They were actively serving the Lord at great personal expense and great personal sacrifice. And number three, he uses the word patience. This word speaks of steadfast endurance. It tells us that this church was working in spite of opposition. The people in Ephesus did not appreciate these people or their zeal for the Lord, and they opposed them publicly and physically. But these people endured the opposition, they endured the persecution, and they continued to serve the Lord faithfully in spite of everything that was thrown against them. If you had gone to this church on a typical Sunday, you would have heard about a week filled with activity and opportunities for service. These people knew something that the modern church has forgotten. They knew that a church will not build itself. They also knew that a church cannot sustain itself. They knew that it takes people who will stick by the stuff. They also knew that it takes work to do these things. Churches everywhere have been turned into country clubs where the frozen chosen meet to congratulate themselves on their salvation. Churches can become places where the saints enter to worship and to be equipped for service and then go out of this place to work for the glory of God in their homes, schools, communities, and places of business. God did not save us to coast into glory on flowery beds of ease. He saved us to be active in His work until He calls us home to His glory. People ask me, Don, why do you do so much? When are you going to slow down? When are you going to retire? And I tell them, I can rest when I get to heaven. There's nothing about retirement in the Bible. And this church was a picture of that. They worked and worked and worked. Now, if Jesus were to appear on the platform of our church today, would he commend us for our works or labor, or our patience. He commends them for their separation. Canst not bear them which are evil. These people were living a separated lifestyle. The immorality and evil that defined their world was not a part of their lives. 
They took a stand on the side of morality and they lived differently than the world around them. God still expects this from all of his children. He demands that we be separate from this evil word, world. 2 Corinthians 6.17, Paul writes, Wherefore come out from among them and be ye what? Separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. In our walk, in our talk, in our dress, our choices of entertainment, every area of our life, we are commanded to be different from the lost world around us. That is the only way we can let the light of Christ shine. Matthew 5, 16, Let your lights so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. If Jesus were to speak to our church and to our hearts today, would he commend us for being a separated people? Or have we gone back into Egypt to live our lives the way before we got saved? And then he commends their standards. These people are praised because they held fast to correct doctrine. When people passed through their town claiming to be men of God, this church put them to the test. They checked out their credentials. They examined their preaching. If what they said did not line up with the word of God, they refused to hear them or to fellowship with them. And they exposed them to be the liars they were. They are also commended because of their stand against the Nicolaitans. No one knows for sure who these people were, but there are a couple of possibilities. The word comes from two Greek words, nikaio, which means to conquer, and laos means the people. Therefore, the Nicolaitans could have been a group of church leaders who wanted to establish a hierarchy in the church. In other words, there may have been some who wanted to run the show and keep the people under control. That crowd is still with us today. In some denominations, there is a distinction between the clergy and the laity, and that ought not to be so. Another possibility is that the Nicolaitans were uh, followers of a fellow named Nicholas who attempted to lead the people away from the Lord and into immorality. He preached a doctrine that allowed people to serve the Lord and still lead immoral lives. And that man is still around today in many, many forms. Either way, what was deeds in verse 6 has become doctrines in verse 15. And this is the reverse order the Bible clearly lays out. We learn doctrine, and then that doctrine controls our deeds. The flesh likes to do what it pleases, and then devises doctrine to suit itself. The the Ephesian believers refused to allow false doctrine to exist in their fellowship. How did they do this? They placed every teaching alongside the Word of God. If it did not line up with the book, they refused to receive it. We need that attitude today. Not everything that comes down the pike is from the Lord. People should check out what they hear. Be careful of videos on Facebook. Facebook or videos on YouTube, these these guys are out there and we must avoid them at all costs. Too many people, too many church folks believe everything they hear. They'll listen to preachers on TV saying things that they would not tolerate in their church. 
They praise men that cannot even articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ, but who stroke their egos and feed their flesh. If someone makes them feel good, they don't care what he believes. Friends, you are headed for trouble down the line if that's the approach to preaching and preachers that you're taking. We ought to be like the Berean believers who put everything they heard to the acid test. Here's what the Bible says about them. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. They checked them out. What would Jesus say, not about our opinions, but about our doctrinal standards? Doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. It's so important. You need to know your doctrine. And then he commends their steadfastness. This is a church that has been carrying the load, enduring much affliction and opposition, laboring to the point of exhaustion, and they have done so without any signs of, or weariness. They were a very steadfast congregation, and what they did, they did for the sake of the Lord. They are a church that deserves to be commended. On the surface, the church at Ephesus is what every church should strive to be. We should be busy for the Lord. We should flesh out the command of 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Does that verse describe you? Does it describe your church? Does it describe your life? Would Jesus commend you for your steadfastness? So, Jesus examines their reputation, and then Jesus exposes the reality. After offering this church some words of commendation, Jesus now gives them some words of complaint. He was disappointed. While they look good on the surface, there are problems in the heart that must be dealt with. Jesus let them know that this is a personal matter. It seems that he is grieved by the problems he sees in this church. We need to understand that Jesus sees what we do, but he also sees what and who we are. He is able to look beneath the surface of our lives and see the condition of our hearts. When he finds error and sin in our hearts, it grieves him and it hinders our ability to enjoy his fellowship and his blessings. When we allow the wrong kind of things to linger in our hearts, it grieves him. Ephesians 4.30, And grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby ye are sealed until the day of redemption. You say, well, the Holy Spirit, I thought you said Jesus. Yes, I did. They are one. Then he gives them his diagnosis. Jesus looks at these people whom he loves and for whom he died and tells them that they simply do not love him like they used to. He tells them that they have left their first love. Oh, what a shame. They have left their first love. They still have love, but the deep, fervent, burning love that filled them with a passion to serve Him has left their hearts. Oh, they love their church, but they do not love Him like they used to. Or they love their doctrine, but they have lost their passion for Jesus. Or they love their work, 
but they are not motivated in that work by a passionate love for Jesus. Well, they're busy, but their hearts no longer burn for their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The flame that burned so hotly and brightly when it was first ignited is now nothing but a smoldering ember. They have lost their passion for the Son of God. They have left their first love. You see, Christian life is basically a love affair with the Lord Jesus Christ. Getting saved is falling in love with Him. Growing in salvation is falling deeper in love with Him. This love is the motive for all we do in His name. Whether we sing, or we teach, or we preach, or we witness, or we give, and on and on, it must all flow out of an ever-deepening love for the Lord Jesus Christ. If we lose our love for Him, then our service means nothing at all. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Love is an action word. Love is supposed to grow. I mean, I love my wife more today than I ever have. I love my children more today than I did when I first saw them. I love my people. I love my church. I love my pastor. But our love should grow. But I wonder if Jesus would have to say to some of us, you don't love me like you used to. It would break our hearts if our spouse said that to us. I wonder, would it even phase us if we knew the Lord felt that way? What is this first love anyway? What makes it so special? First love is fervent love. It is emotional. It moves the heart. It causes the soul to thrill. It is not cold, dead, dusty, and dry. It is alive and it is vibrant. Remember when you first fell in love with your mate. I remember. I remember that day when I first fell in love with Cookie. Man, that love was fervent. It was emotional. It made me write a bunch of mushy letters, which I did when I was in the Coast Guard. And and I I said things that I would never say if love hadn't short-circuited my brain. Now, can you remember when you were first saved? Can you remember how in love you were with your Savior, Jesus? How in love you were with the church and His people and His Word? Can you remember how you prayed and worshipped and witnessed? Remember the emotion when you thought of what He had done for you. That, my friends, is fervent love. It is extravagant. Love will make you spend money for things you can't afford. We've all done that. I bought my wife stuff (laughs) that I didn't have the money for. Put it on the old charge card and I'll figure out how to pay for it later. Real love never draws lines. Real love will give anything at any time for the object of that love. 
Can you remember when Jesus had absolute control of your heart and you would not dare to tell him so? That is first fervent love. Does this describe your love for him? Do you serve him because you love him? Or do you do it from a sense of duty? It is possible to labor without love, but it is impossible to love without labor. You can work and not be in love with Jesus, but you cannot be in love with Jesus and be sitting on a pew doing nothing. The church of Ephesus was active in the Lord's work, but they were serving out of a sense of duty and not out of a fervent love for him. They had become like Martha in Luke 10 when she labored, but she labored. She didn't do it out of love. She did it out of a sense of duty. What about us? Are there some that are serving because it is what people expect from us and not because of what we do for the Lord? Love for Jesus should be at the bottom of all we do. Whether we teach, preach, sing, clean the church, serve as deacons, whatever, we should do it out of love, out of a fervent, heartfelt love for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can't always say that we love sinners like we should. Some are very unlovable. But we, I'm sorry, if we love him like we should, we will be able to witness to those people anyway. We may not always love one what we are asked to do. Let me say that again. We may not always love what we are asked to do for him. But if we love him, we will gladly accept the call for his glory. Can you honestly say that your heart is still filled with that first fervent, emotional, extravagant love for Jesus? Or have you left your first love? Now, don't look at the person next to you. Don't look at the person in front of you or behind you. You need to read your own mail and read it today and let the Lord speak to your heart. So he examines the reputation he exposes their reality, and then he explains their remedy. Jesus has not come to hurt them. He has come to help them. He offers a word of commendation, a word of complaint, and now he speaks a word of correction. He tells them how they can fix that which is wrong with the church. He speaks about remembering. Jesus calls on these people to look back. He wants them to remember the moment when they came to know him. He wants them to reflect on what he did for them. He wants them to recall all the excitement and emotion of those early days with him. He wants them to look back to a time when their love for him was motivated by their love for him. He says, remember. And then he speaks about repenting. That word repent speaks of a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Jesus is telling these people that they need to repent of the sin of not loving him like they should. They need to search their hearts and change their attitude towards the Lord. The same counsel needs to be heeded by the modern church today. We've allowed everything in the world to come before the Lord. Our family, our fun, our work, even church work has all taken his place in our hearts. We need to get back to our altars and reclaim that emotional, extravagant first love and fall head over heels in love with Jesus one more time. How long 
has it been since you confessed a lack of burning love for him? How long has it been since you were open and unashamed in your expressions of love for the master? We need to repent of our coldness and fall in love with Jesus afresh and anew. He speaks about repenting. He tells them to do the first works. They are, they are told to start doing the things that they used to do before. That is the key for their revival, and it is the key for us as well. We need to get back to the first works, back to reading our Bible, back to praying, back to witnessing, back to testifying, back to crying, back to praising His name. We need to get back to the things that marked us when we were deeply in love with Jesus. Get before Him today and ask Him to show you the way back. He speaks about removing. If they refuse to get where they need to be, Jesus tells them He is willing to extinguish their candle. That is just what He did at Ephesus. They failed to heed the message and He took away their light. Now there is no great Christian work in that city. There is nothing there but ruin and rubble. When there's a lamp in your living room that needs a new bulb, what do you do? When you change it, I am going to throw the old one in the trash. Why? Uselessness brings, breeds disaster. A light that won't shine is not worth having around. When a church stops shining its love for Jesus, when they stop being a bright light for the Lord, He will take His power, His torch, and He will put it where people will honor Him and love Him. Your light will go out. I do not want God to take away what we have. I want to continue to serve Him. But if we fall out of love with Him and continue in that state, the day will come when He will take what we do have and He will give it to those who will use it for His glory. Mark it down. It's either remember, repent, and repeat, or it is removal. And then lastly, Jesus expounds the reward. We have heard our Lord's word of commendation, complaint, and correction. In this final verse, He closes with words of consolation. My friends, there is hope. The reward is available. Jesus speaks of the overcomer. This word means to carry off the victory. It seems to be saying that there will be some in the church of Ephesus who will hear the message and heed the message. These people will seek the Lord's face, fall in love with Him, and be restored to that place of intimacy and fellowship. This reward is available to all who will seek it. The reward is amazing. Those who overcome will be able to experience something that other believers will miss out on. They will get to eat from the tree of life. When Adam sinned in Eden, he was cast out of the gardens to prevent him from eating from this tree. Those who live this life head over heels in love with Jesus will get to taste the fruit of that tree. They, along with other believers, have eternal life already. That's fantastic. This is a special gift to the ones who love Him. Jesus seems to be saying that those who love Him the most will enjoy heaven the most. I want all I can bother, I want all I can get, whether here or hereafter, I want all I can get. How about you? In conclusion now, I want you to be honest with yourself and with your Lord for just a moment. Honestly, have you left your first love? Are you busy? 
but are you busy out of duty and not out of love? Can you honestly say that you are filled with fervent, emotional, extravagant love for Jesus? Or would you have to say that your heart has become cold, that your zeal is not what it used to be, that you need to remember, repent, and repeat the first works? If Jesus has touched your heart, you need to deal with him. The time is now and the place is now. We're going to get to Revelation 3.20 in a few weeks. But it talks about Jesus knocking. He's knocking at our heart's door. We use this when we are witnessing to people. But what that's talking about, that's written to the church, it's written to you and me. He's knocking at our heart's door. He says, I want to come in. I want to, I want to sup with you. And you with me. I want to have fellowship. I want you to love me more. Would you open the door? Would you open the heart's door? And let me come in and sup with you and you with me. This is talking about having a deeper, deeper relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you do that today? Now you may be here and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior. You don't understand what this first love is. You need to find out. You need to understand that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You need to understand that God has demonstrated his love towards us so while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You need to understand that salvation is by grace, through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I love giving my wife gifts. I wrap them all up real nice while I have the folks at the store do it anyway. Then I bring it home and it's such a pleasure to see her face light up when I bring her a gift. But if she doesn't reach out and take that gift, it hasn't become hers. She needs to reach out to take that from my hand and then it's her gift. So it is with salvation. God is offering you a gift, the gift of Jesus Christ. But you, my friend, have to reach out and take that gift. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, that thou, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, says, Thou shalt be saved, and that's saved from wrath, saved from hell. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10, 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You've got to call on Him. He's not going to force His way. You need to bow your head. You need to repent of your sins and call on Him to save you. Would you do that right now? I'm going to say some words, a word, some words of prayer. And I'd like you to repeat these words after me, which you've got to mean them in your heart. It says, With the heart man believeth unto righteousness. That word righteousness means right with God. With the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So would you say these words right now? Bow your head right now. Dear Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose again. 
and I ask you into my heart right now to be the Lord of my life, to take me to heaven when I die, to make me born again, and I ask it in your name. Amen. Now, if you are sincere about that prayer, I never ask anybody, well, how do you feel? But if you are sincere, the Holy Spirit has moved into your heart, has regenerated your dead spirit, and made you a born-again Christian. If you're not in a good church, you need to find a good church. Continue to follow us here. We'll be sharing more and more about this as we move through this great book. I thank God for the time you've had today. Thank you for being here. I appreciate your faithfulness. I hope you'll stay with us for all lessons as we get through to chapter 22. But until next time, keep looking up and listening for the shout. J. Michael back once again. We sincerely hope you are enjoying this series on the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. If so, tell your friends and family about it. We are trying to reach as many as we can with this series. It is so pertinent for the days in which we live. Additionally, we are trying to reach as many lost souls as we can, for the time is short. Join us next time as we take a look at the rich little poor church, the church at Smyrna. Until then, keep looking up.